Good to be with you this morning at this conference. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to a couple of texts, I'm not going to kind of uh, go deep exposition on one in particular, but just a couple to keep our minds on and just to the book of Genesis and, and, and the book of Ephesians. They're the, they're the two books of the Bible. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Genesis 2:24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And now to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, just a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, even as we consider this theme of, of resilience, the resilience of the individual Christian, uh, we come to the Christian home, and I ask now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, upon uh, his word that we might see and understand uh, deep theological truths in order to build well uh, for the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I think there is a deep homesickness in our homeless generation today. Uh, the ache of not belonging, of not having security, uh, a sense of place, of identity, a history. To a great degree, this is because the idea of home and the family has been eroded and redefined. And so we see a dislocation in society around us. 
And this has affected the church, of course. What begins in the home bleeds into church life and even affects pastoral leadership for uh, how a man manages his own household dictates whether he is qualified to lead in the household of God, 1 Timothy 3. Fatherhood in the home and pastoral care in the church are parallel activities, if you like. So when Paul is thinking of church leadership in 1 Timothy 3, he thinks of fatherhood in the home. So central to the issue of homelessness is fatherlessness, and we are a fatherless generation, a fatherless generation. Therefore, we have fragile homes. Now, we often point out that the culture hates the home. The culture hates marriage. Avoid marriage, they say. Prepare for college, get a career, have a good time. Then when you're done having fun, get married, because marriage isn't fun. We've brought this idea into the church, for sure. Some of you are maybe stuck in that mindset. Education and work are more important than marriage. Now, singleness is an honorable estate, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. But ungodly, selfish, prolonged singleness is a blight. Plus, now we are redefining marriage and opening up the idea of a family as two men together who adopt children. Or a trans man, who is really a woman, who has a baby with her married partner. We often also point out that as the culture hates marriage, the culture hates children. Children are a burden and an inconvenience. They're not a blessing from the Lord, but they're just a product of biological urges that can be eradicated through abortion if necessary. But what we don't always highlight is that the culture hates fatherhood. Fathers have been removed from their rightful place in the center of family life with devastating effects. So we have homes without order, without guidance, and without love. And consequently, we have homes that are not resilient. And we need resilient homes as much as ever for the battle ahead. The government is against the Christian home. The education system is against the Christian home. The media and virtually all modern literature are against the Christian home. But behind the government and all of these systems is the devil. It's the devil, friends. It's interesting, isn't it, that after Paul writes the household code in Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6, he tells us what? Be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God. What's the reason? To be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil hates the Christian home. He has done from the beginning when he disrupted the perfect home in Eden. He is described in Genesis 3 as crafty. And in Ephesians 6, he is a schemer. He's a crafty schemer. The enemy of the Christian home is not ultimately your prime minister. The real tyrant is Satan. He might use rulers, but here is where the battle is at. It is a spiritual battle. But the good news is, that God is for the Christian home. And if God is for us, who can be against us? As long as we do things God's way. Because unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He is the architect, 
and the answer to the homesickness of our homeless, fatherless generation is the Lord and His ways. So if we will build resilient homes that will stand against the devil's schemes today, we must build God's way. Then we will be resilient in any day, not just our day. So building future homes in future days for future generations. Now before moving on, we need to situate ourselves in the gospel here to get our gospel grammar in the correct order, if you like. So the first three chapters of Ephesians basically say, done. That's the gospel. Done. The indicative. God has done it in Christ. We were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Ephesians 2. There is nothing to do, friends, but believe this. Believe this. Chapters 1 to 3. Then Ephesians 4 to 6 tells us the imperatives. Therefore, on the basis of chapters 1 to 3, the gospel, therefore walk like this. Act like this. Because of what God has done and because of who you are now in Christ, be like this. Do this. And this is where we find the structure of the Christian home in, in chapters 5 and 6, in the imperatives. So the same God who forgives our sins in our salvation offers us mercy in our sanctification. So take heart here and root yourself in the gospel because it is the power that you're going to need if you're going to build. So that said, all that said, I want to offer four theological pillars for building resilient Christian homes upon, and then four theological applications for growing resilient Christian homes. I, I did give a, a handout, hand it's printed out, so it should be a sort of a framework for you to uh, follow. Resilient homes are built on four key theological pillars that I'll highlight here. The first <coughs> pillar is the eternal pleasure of the Father in the Son, and Pastor Clint was alluding to this somewhat last evening. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world and has blessed us in the beloved, he says. So this means that God the Father and God the Son have existed before the foundation of the world, before time began, and they've existed in a familial relationship as father to son, son to father. And Paul tells us further in uh, Ephesians 3.15 that every family on earth is named after God the Father. So the Father then is the source of family. That is, we get our idea of fatherhood and sonship and the Christian family and the Christian home from God, not the other way around. And notice the Son is the Beloved, referred to as the Beloved in chapter 1. He is Beloved of the Father. In other words, He is the supreme object of the Father's love. So that all God's blessings 
come to us in Christ. If we are in Christ, and Christ is the object of the Father's love, we receive all of those blessings. Christ is literally referred to as the Son of His love in Colossians 1, verse 13. The Son of His love, the Son of His Father's love. At His baptism, we see the Holy Spirit depend, descend upon Jesus like a dove, and then we hear the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This love of the Father for the Son is such then that the bounty which Christians receive is by being in Christ through faith and having his atoning work applied to us, the bounty exists in being caught up in this familial love and pleasure that exists between the Father and the Son. And, and furthermore, in, in John 14, we even hear that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, that is heaven, and he will one day return to take the church, his bride, home to be with him there. So that everyone's sense of homelessness and homesickness and fatherlessness is firstly met by coming home to the Father through the Son and being swept up into the sphere of the Father's love for the Son. Even as Jesus promises in John 14, verse 23, that the Father will love us and that He and the Son will come to us and make their home with us. So this is the first theological pillar we need to have in place in order to build resilient Christian homes. It is that all families find their source in the Father and His eternal love and pleasure in the Son. And all believers, the household of God, are caught up in this such that we experience this love and pleasure as the Father and Son make their home with us and as we look towards dwelling face to face with them to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the resilient Christian home is built on that pillar. And consequently, the resilient Christian home should be a place then that reflects the Father's love for and pleasure in His Son. Second theological pillar is the historical structure of the first human family. So the first pillar is set in eternity. The second pillar is set in history. From before the world began to when the world began. When God birthed the universe, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what does it mean to think of God as the father of creation? It means many things, of course, but it does mean, as James says, James 1.17, He is the father of the heavenly lights. He is the source of all goodness and the source of all, a good creation. And the father in creation, after speaking a universe into existence, says, and now, as the crown of creation, let us make man in our image. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
It's as if he says, there's something missing in this home that I'm building. And so the climax of Genesis 1 is man, male and female, made in the image of God, created beings, but with an image and a likeness of God. And in the special creation of the man, we see the head of the human race appear in chapter 2. That is Adam. He is to work and keep the garden and rule creation. And with this headship, Adam is given all the physical and emotional and spiritual resources in his surroundings and his natural life. But God says, you're going to need a helper. And she will help you extend your rule. And she will complement you in all ways. So what we see in this historical structure of the first human family is that there is order and harmony. There is order and harmony. And so God then generously fashions this woman from the man's rib. Literally builds a woman. Talk about building analogies. He builds a woman from the man's rib and he brings into existence this beautiful companion that's like him and yet different from him. His equal, yet his complement. Him the head, her the helper, her from him, but for him. And so this order then is for harmony in the home. But it's also for productivity in the home. So her first helping task will be to bear his children through the one flesh union of marriage. This is the mission. Productivity in the home. To then spread image bearers beyond the boundaries of the home until the whole world is filled with the knowledge of God with these multiple image bearers reflecting who God is. God is the father of Adam, the father of Eve, and he brings her to the man at the very first wedding in history. So you see how God builds the family, that first home as it were. And therefore the resilient Christian home is built on this second theological pillar. Therefore it will be a place of order and harmony and productivity, just like the first home that God built. Which then links to the third theological pillar. That is the grace and generosity of the Father. The Father is gracious and generous in creation. He makes Adam and Eve and says, I provide everything for you. All you need and more. Now enjoy and explore and extend the garden. And you need to, to notice some of the language in Genesis 2 that describes, for instance, every tree, Genesis 2 verse 8, as pleasant to the sight and good for food. And, and then you hear Adam's words of joy, even poetry, when he sees his beautiful wife. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So the first home is a beautiful place, aesthetically beautiful and a joyful place. Nothing is ugly. It's experientially beautiful. It engages Adam's senses from trees to his wife. And the father says, enjoy it. See, God is so generous. He's lavishly generous. He's not all about spoiling your fun. He's not all about saying no. In fact, look at all the yeses he gives to his first children. Just one no. Just not that tree, not the fruit from that tree. Just one no. 
All the rest is yeses. And so the Father shows His grace and generosity in creation, but He also shows His grace and generosity in redemption. You just need to look at Ephesians 1 and verse 6. So you, you have in Ephesians 1 this wonderful presentation of the gospel, how the Father blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing on the basis of His electing love that adopts us as sons. And then you have this line in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. To the praise of His glorious grace. You see, the gospel exists so that we would praise the glory of God's grace. That's the point. That's why He saves us. It's the point of the universe to showcase God's glorious grace and then for us to worship Him because of it. That's why you see in Revelation 5, you know, the worship song and you, the, the, the people are praising the Lamb who was slain. The slainness of the Lamb is at the center of the praises of God's people forever because it's God's grace. So the Father is a gracious giver. Do a study of the Gospel of John at Calvary Grace. We're going to be going through the Gospel of John in our men's and women's studies upcoming. Do a study of the Gospel of John. See how the Word is full of grace and truth in chapter 1, verse 14. But the Word of God, Jesus, makes the character of the Father known. He has made Him known. So He's showing us what the Father is like. He's full of grace. See how the Father gives His Son to us, John 3.16. And see how the Father gives us to His Son, John 10.29. See how the Father gives us a place in His house, John 14.1 and 2. See how the Father gives us the Spirit, John 14.16. See how the Father gives us what we ask in Jesus' name, John 16.23. God is a gracious giver. He is generous. He displays that in creation and in redemption. And not seeing the Father as a gracious, generous giver was the problem for both the sons in the parable of the prodigal son. They both thought of the Father as stingy. Uh, you're a hard man. You know, difficult to please, not giving them what... And yet he gave everything to both of them. To see God rightly is a vital theological pillar for resilient Christian homes. So what is the tone of your home? Is it aesthetically beautiful with the means that God gives you? A place of many yeses which outweigh the noes? A place that reflects the grace and generosity of our Father in heaven in all of our relationships within the home? Is that the flavor of your home? Does the Father's generosity and grace pervade your home? That's the third theological pillar. And if the Father's grace pervades the home, then the fourth theological pillar is that masculinity should define the home. God is spirit, but He is revealed to us as masculine. He is Father. We are taught to pray to our Father in heaven. The second person of the Trinity is revealed to us as the Son of the Father, and He comes to us incarnate as a man. 
Christ Jesus as a man, not a woman, as Pastor Clint even pointed out last night. Obvious but true. He is the one mediator between God and man. Adam is the head of creation. Jesus, the second Adam, is the head of the new creation, the church. The human race is named man, not woman, in Genesis 1, indicating a primacy of masculinity in defining the relationship. That is why traditionally a woman will take her husband's last name. Unfortunately, some women who refuse to take their husband's last names are still stuck with their father's last names. A little bit of light humor for you there. Because I know someone somewhere will say, in some cultures over there, there is a real reason why we don't know. But anyway. So men are not the source of masculinity. Get this. Men are not the source of masculinity. But they are God's chosen sex to carry the masculine role of husband and father. Reflecting God as father and Christ as husband. Listen carefully to that. What, what of women, you say? What about women? Are they less important? No. They are created in the image of God, equal to men. They are co-heirs in the kingdom, same as Christian men. They too, though, are called to point to God as father and Christ as husband. How? By the way they help affirm their father's role, the way they help affirm their husband's role, their husband even as a father. They affirm that. What women are then saying is, look, this is what God is like. God is Father. God is Son. Bridegroom. This is what God is like. So you see, men and women are both pointing to God, the Father, God, the Son. What if a man and woman are not married yet or never marry. Well, unmarried men and women show single-minded allegiance to the bridegroom in the corporately feminine role of the church as bride. And unmarried men and women can all affirm fathers and husbands where appropriate. And all men can be spiritual fathers in the church, which points to the fatherhood of God. And spiritual mothers are called to train younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, thus showing Christ to be a husband worthy to be followed in the way that the church respects and submits to their elders. The whole church is pointing to the Son, who is the chief shepherd, even as they submit to their under-shepherds, and the bridegroom of the church, whom the elders are called to imitate. And as the congregation, men and women, submit to their elders, they point to the Father in heaven, because godly fatherhood in the home, as I've already said, is one of the qualifications for an elder. In First Timothy 3, so you see how it's all designed. It's all designed to point to God not to us. So the home is masculine defined. And within this, both men and women, equally though differently in some senses, function so that it becomes a place which points like an arrow to the Father and the Son. 
fourth theological pillar for resilient homes. They are masculine defined. Four theological pillars then. One, the home reflecting the eternal love and pleasure of God the Father and God the Son. Second, the home incorporating the historical structure of the first human family, order, harmony, productivity. Third, the home displaying the grace and generosity of God the Father. And fourth, the home being masculine defined. On top of these four theological pillars, we can now apply four key theological applications. The first is husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. In order to build resilient homes, we need to recover husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. We have a problem with headship in the church because we gave up on headship in the home years ago. Recover headship in the family and you will see the next generation embrace it in the household of God. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Paul instructs us this way in Ephesians 5. The husband's position is head. He doesn't grow into it. He is it. And the wife is to arrange herself under that headship. His headship is the basis for her submission. So that her submission is not so much something she does, it is the posture she adopts. That's why she can submit, verse 24, in everything. In all areas of life, a wife is under her husband's headship. It means nothing less than being obedient to him, but it means more than this. You see, a wife is not always doing what her husband asks. Sometimes she's doing all sorts of things he hasn't specifically asked of her. Actually, her task is to be his helper. So, think, wives, think of yourselves not as a submitter, but to help her. But she always does this in position of submission to his headship. And therefore she acts in a manner appropriate to her position, functioning out of that position as his helper. See, it's about position. He is head. She respects his headship. That's why wives are to respect their husbands. She places herself under his headship and note she actively does this. So this is not a passive doormat thing. And she does it as to the Lord, Paul says. She thus affirms a husband-led marriage. She's affirming that. What about headship? Well, we can see from 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 11 verse 3, the headship comes from God. It's not necessarily tied to sex. And it does not mean inequality. It does not mean inequality. In the order, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. So God the Father sends God the Son, and Jesus then submits to his Father's will in all he does. So we see headship originates with God, 
But Philippians 2 tells us Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And yet he obeyed his Father's will all the way to death on the cross. So Jesus is equal with his Father but chooses to submit to his Father's will. So headship is from God. It's not tied to sex alone. And it does not mean inequality. Yet in the husband-wife relationship, he is her head. And it is this way, why? Because it reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. He's referring back to that historical structure in the first human family. Then he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. When Paul says that, it is not marriage in general he's talking about, but marriage with the Christ-like headship of the husband and the church-like submission of the wife. That's what reflects the gospel. These are the lines that bring definition, if you like, to the picture. But we're a generation that has given up on headship in the home. We pay lip service at best, and most marriages are functionally egalitarian. They're functionally egalitarian, even if they might proclaim that they would adhere to this. They function in an egalitarian way. We must return to husband-led marriages for the sake of the gospel, because it's about the picture of the gospel. That's why we do it, and that's why it's in God's Word. We must also return to father-led parenting. Ephesians 6 and verses 1 expresses that both the parents are in authority over the children. But verse 3 tells us fathers must take a lead. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parenting must be father-led. And if fathers are heads of their husbands are heads of their wives, of course, as a father, you're head of the overall home. It's interesting, in an article a few years ago, Nancy Gibbs wrote in Time magazine and made this observation. From the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. What about that? Before this time, society assumed that mothers were assistant fathers. Now it is assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. William Farley, whose books on parenting I highly recommend, notes a couple of reasons for this. One is the rise of feminism. It rejects parental role uh, specialization according to sex and uh, makes it interchangeable. Now everything dad can do, mum can do better. Another reason is a general suspicion of authority structures nowadays. And another is the homeschool movement. Watch out, homeschoolers. Going to come for you here. No, I'm not. But it's, it's something to consider. We're all for homeschooling here. and it, It's something to consider. Although we are for homeschooling, mums that participate with their children all day, by default, become the teacher, the disciplinarian, the all-competent parent on the scene. And the role of father can often just slide to the margin unless you're intentionally making it right. And the greatest temptation here that most contemporary fathers are going to have is passivity. 
and just let it roll because that was Adam's great sin, right? Now, whatever the school situation with you guys, most mothers will still be with the child or the children more than the father in the day. The key is that both know who bears the ultimate responsibility before God. On the last day, God will hold dad accountable first for the parenting process. He will hold mom responsible for how she helped him. Now, there are many excellent, uh, and I'm sure well-intended books written by Christian mothers for Christian mothers. But where's the chapter entitled, How I Worked With My Husband? You don't see it. Since he's the lead parent, the discussion should be unquestionable. In the Bible, the father is the lead parent and the wife is his assistant. Paradigm shift needs to take place. Remember, the fatherhood of God is the overarching theme for the biblical family and it's to be reflected in the various spheres as qualified Male elders are like fathers to the congregation, then in the household of God, as husbands in the home provide that fatherly, loving authority, all patterned on the Father in heaven. Patricentrism is the term scholar Andreas Kostenberger calls it, where in the ancient world the father was the center of the nuclear home and used his love and authority for the benefit of his wife and children and servants and neighbors. The mother is helper in that task, by his side, under his authority, but still in authority over the children. So there is order for the sake of health and harmony in the home. If we're going to build on the four theological pillars for resilient homes, we will necessarily return to husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. And... If we return to husbands and fathers leading, we must also regain confidence in life-giving authority that must be exercised. That's the second theological application. We need to regain confidence in life-giving authority that must be exercised. Many husbands and fathers have abdicated their responsibility to exercise their God-given headship in their homes. They've done it because of sin and laziness, sometimes neglect. Some have never been taught about it, never been shown how. But many, you know, are simply afraid to exercise it. They're afraid. The culture is telling them that all men are potential abusers, uh, that masculinity is toxic and authority is a dangerous thing, that women blanket are victims of male oppression and behind it all is an unspoken idea that women are somehow more moral than men. Now even though we recognize that some men and women do abuse and some men and women are toxic, we recognize these things and they need to be dealt with. But often men are guilty till proven innocent with an accusation and so you see the problem, don't you? Men shrink back in fear. Who wants to be accused of being an abuser when you try and take initiative or exercise authority or assume the role? Or if you do, you can only do it the way the culture prescribes you can do it, which is basically to emasculate men and reduce them to tame puppy dogs who follow 
their wives around on a leash. And so we must gain confidence in right authority and then use it and submit to it. Headship, therefore, is what? It is the assumption of loving responsibility which sacrificially protects and provides in order to give life. It is the assumption of loving responsibility which sacrifice, sacrificially protects and provides in order to give life. That's why I've called it uh, the, the second point, life-giving authority. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Headship contains that note of authority. The authority throws through the loving sacrifice of responsibility as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Headship is not about being the boss. It's about being the sacrificer. Now, of course, a man can never be the sacrifice in the same way Christ was. Christ alone atones for sin. Christ is our substitute in the sense of being our sin bearer. Only he can do that. But he is a substitute also in the sense of being our representative. He represents us so that we die with Christ, are buried with Christ, and raised to new life with Christ. His representative role actually makes it a personal sacrifice rather than an abstract sacrifice. In Adam, our old representative head, all are dead. In Christ, our new representative head, we all live. So, a husband is head in a representative sense over his wife. Not that he is guilty for her sin, let alone that he could atone for it, but not that he's guilty for her sin, but he is overall responsible for her. It didn't matter, you see, that it, Eve sinned most obviously in the garden. Who does God call to account first? Adam. Adam, where are you? Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. He is her representative head. God deals with Eve, but God makes Adam first responsible. L let me give you an example. And I gave this to the uh, folks uh, who came to our um, uh, seminar the other week. If my wife, Amanda, and I have had an argument in our home, and let's say that she is completely at fault. There is no sin in me in this argument. There probably is, but... Let's just, for the argument's sake, say it's all her fault. The sin lies with her, okay? And she's off on one side of the house sulking, and I'm off on the other side of the house. And if God were to knock at the door and Amanda were to answer that, that door, I think God would say, hello, Amanda, I want to speak to Gavin. I want to speak to the head of the home. Even if... She's the one at fault. She's the one that's sinning. And he will call me to account first and say, what's going on in your home? Tell me. And what have you done to bring it back to the foot of the cross? I'm her representative head in that sense. And I have to take that responsibility. So that Christ's blood is the reason for a man's authority. He must show his headship by loving his wife, how? As Christ loved his bride, the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her by his blood. So this is what you do, husbands. You take responsibility. 
as representative head. You, you protect her. You provide for her. You encourage, you guide, you correct her by washing her with the word, Ephesians 5.26. This is how your authority is channeled. It's to give her life. You nourish and cherish, Paul says, and she grows. This is life-giving words. And you will grow. Wife, you encourage this in your husband and receive this, you grow. He grows. Fathers, the same word for nourish is used in Ephesians 6, verse 4, in that phrase, bring up your children. That's the same word that's used in chapter 5 for nourish. So your headship as father is for their nourishment. It means that fatherhood extends way beyond begetting your children. You must bring them up. You've got to nourish them. Your headship is to be exercised for their life. And you do this through instruction and discipline. This is what masculinity is. Masculinity is about taking responsibility and sacrificing to provide for and protect life. Masculinity is about bleeding for others. Masculinity is about dying. And that's how the Father and the Son show masculinity to us in the gospel, which means that a man who abdicates his responsibility as head in his home, he abdicates his responsibility to exercise masculinity, he is actually being functionally effeminate. And we might think of effeminacy in many different ways, but I bet you've never thought of it like that. Abdicating the role to exercise your masculine function is functional effeminacy. And then what you get is you get a chasm, a vortex, and a woman, she'll be sucked into that. And then she will be acting the masculine role. And so you have role reversal in the homes where she's fulfilling a masculine role and he's actually being effeminate in his abdication. If your wife won't respond to your headship, what do you do? You sit down with your wife and you gently and prayerfully and patiently explain from God's Word God's purposes for the home and how she is called to help you as head on the mission and all these things that we've already talked about. If she won't repent, maybe then it's time to call your elders in for help. This is a serious thing. And finally on this issue, if you're called to be head, then you should show an example of what it is to submit to right authority. If you're a man who does or will not or do, didn't submit to his father's headship well or doesn't do it now or to a boss in the workplace or to your elders or even to the government, you probably got a problem with authority and you actually won't exercise authority well yourself. Good heads submit themselves to appropriate headship well. And they show an example even in that to their wives and children who are called to submit to their headship. So the second theological application for resilient homes is to regain confidence in the use of life-giving authority. Which leads to the third application to practice the imitation game. With the four theological pillars in place and the first two applications applied, the resilient 
Christian home now becomes a place where imitation can take place. We learn well, don't we? Not only by instruction, but by imitation. And so Paul's way of life is worth imitating. I think Pastor Josh even mentioned this or alluded to it in his sermon. Paul tells people to imitate him. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Or the writer of Hebrews tells us to imitate our leaders who spoke the word of God to us to consider their way of life. Imitate them. By virtue of being a father and affirming father-led parenting, you are very faintly imitating God the Father for your children. By being a husband and wife who imitate Christ and the church, you are both speaking, both speaking the gospel of Christ to your children, pointing to Christ as a leader worthy to follow, as a Lord worthy to submit to, as a Savior that we all need. And then children can imitate you in gender-specific ways. This is what sex is created for, binary sexes, in the image of God to imitate something about Him. And what is the great thing, one of the great things about God, and we pointed to it earlier, is the glory of His grace in the gospel. So you see how this is tied then to reflecting the great theological truths of the gospel in the husband and wife, portrayal of the gospel in marriage in these gender-specific ways. So they watch mum and dad, and then you get boys and girls who know how to assume masculinity and how to assume femininity according to their sex, which points to God as father and Jesus as bridegroom and son. Children will then learn what it means to be a biblical man or a biblical woman, and then how that is to be channeled as a husband and father, as a wife and mother, and they imitate it, and then they are, suddenly you get children that are aiming for marriage because they know what the roles are, and they know what it looks like, and they know what its purpose is. So you see how important maleness and femaleness is. It's tied to massive theological, gospel-related realities and it's where our children will find identity and purpose and potential as men and women. That's why we must stand on the issues of biblical sexuality in this day and age. And finally, to just a word for you all, as parents, God's given to you different types of kids. Some are maybe a bit lazy and some are really diligent and some are real boundary pushers and some are very excellent rule keepers. And remember this. Remember the grace that God has shown you and imitate that towards your children, no matter what their character. Imitate the grace of God to all of them, no matter what their personality. That's the third application, is that resilient homes are places that play the imitation game. And that leads then to the fourth one. When you have resilient homes, the husband and father-led, exercising authority that's life-giving, and which becomes spheres of imitation, then the fourth and final application can take place. Resilient homes become little churches. That's the fourth application. I put it in quotes, little churches, because the family is not the church. The church is the bigger family. It's the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. But that does not negate the nuclear home. And resilient homes will be places where a husband disciples his wife and 
Mothers and fathers evangelize their children and fathers take a lead in instruction and discipline. And then by their example, in portraying Christ and the church, their marriage shows people who come into their home for hospitality that Christ is the bridegroom worthy to be wed to. And that in this human, earthly father here in this home, one can see a faint reflection of the loving authority of a heavenly father who welcomes the outcast and is father to the fatherless. And so your home begins to show the gospel welcome of the father in the hospitality that you show others. Thomas Manton once said, a family is the seminary of the church. By family discipline, officers are trained up for the church. So today's homes, think of it like this, today's homes contain tomorrow's pastors. Today's homes contain tomorrow's church congregation. Today's homes contain tomorrow's workforce. What a chance for influence that we have for the kingdom through the Christian home. And one of the best ways to resist the tyranny of the devil with all his malevolent schemes is to build resilient homes according to God's design. The increase and influence of the Christian home is foundational then to the reformation of the wider society. And here we have all greatly failed, friends. I know that. We know that. We have abdicated or we have resisted and we've given up ground even though we've faced a great pressure from outside. So here today is a great call to repent. It's a call to repent. You've got to just go away and you've got to sit down and think about this stuff and, and have a conversation with your spouse and maybe even with your wider family and friends, and you've got to ring the changes. Ring the changes. And you may have been in, you know, doing it a certain way in your home for many years, but you're still called to be reforming and changing according to God's word. So it's a time to repent. It's a time to then take heart. Take heart because the Father has forgiven your sins and the Father has brought you into his family. And the Father will equip you to build a resilient home. He will equip you to do what He commands. So you believe Ephesians 1 to 3 so that you can do and be Ephesians 4 to 6. And know this, when you do repent and return, like the Father in the pro prodigal son, God the Father is eagerly looking down the road He's looking. He's looking for you. And he'll be running to meet you with a robe and a ring and a feast of rejoicing. He is keen to forgive and to restore and help you press on. So let's build resilient homes because the idea of the family comes from the fatherhood of God himself, the father who sent the son to make us sons and heirs, children of the living God, male and female in his image, in the family of the church and in little holy families where a husband steps up where Adam didn't and takes a lead as Christ did and where a husband and wife portray a gospel picture for gospel propagation to the next generation of potential Christians as they parent their children with the fatherhood of God reflected in a father's loving care of his home. 
And that is one of the greatest needs for a homesick, homeless generation. Let's pray. Father, we've heard deep truths from your word today, deep theological truths and theological application. I pray that you give us humble minds and, and, and willing spirits to put these things into place, knowing sins have been forgiven, the Spirit of God indwells us, and you equip us to do what you command. In Jesus' name, amen.